Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have. Joining me on this episode is saxophonist Scott Page. Scott has toured the globe playing alongside some of the biggest bands in the world, including Supertramp, Toto and Pink Floyd. He dropped by to discuss the stories of his career, as well as telling me the worst gifts he's ever been given. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Really great to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you very much. I'm actually honored for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's an honor to have you here as well. Now, I know that your father was a musician himself. So was music yep. always a big part of your life from a very early age? Um, you know, I was, I was surrounded in music when I was a kid. My uh, dad, uh, I actually grew up on a television show called The Lawrence Welk Show which was uh, a variety show, early television, back in the day when there was only like seven channels. That goes back. <laughs> and um, I uh, grew up on that show. Uh, he, was in the, he was in that band for 15 years. I guess one of the, my biggest claim to fame is I'm the only guy that's ever played in Pink Floyd and Lawrence Welk, if you know Lawrence Welk. So it's a, sort of a, a, a little bit of comedy there. It's hard to believe that out of six billion people or whatever it is, I'm one of the only, <laughs> the only person that's ever done that. But um, yeah, I grew up around the music business. My dad um, was in a, not only did Lawrence Walk for years, he was at NBC staff uh, or in the orchestra there and did the light opera season. He was a very well accomplished musician, but I, I actually studied to be an architect and only was thinking music was sort of a secondary thing that I did because my dad wanted me to play. And it wasn't until I got into uh, college where I was actually still a trumpet player uh, that I, uh, really started to become a musician. I got in a kid band with, uh, a bunch of guys, Jeff Beccaro and ah. David Page who became Toto. We had a kid band called the Merciful Soul Band. And, um, I was the oldest guy in the band at the time, the worst guy in the band. <laughs> but I realized at that time, and I've always told this story, I was studying to be a draftsman and I, I was constantly, uh, you know, I drew exploded views and things like that for manuals. And that was when we had to use a pencil and a, and a paper, no, no computers. <laughs> and uh, I remember sitting there drinking coffee all day, drawing, and then remembering my gig the night before when we were playing all the Battle of the Bands, but there was all kinds of girls in the front row. So I said, you know what? I think I'm going to be a musician. <laughs> so I completely changed my, um, my whole um, strategy at that point. I actually took my drafting skills and became a music copyist. And in those days, you know, a, a composer would hand you a score, a handwritten score, and you'd have to write out each of the parts, the trumpet parts, the saxophone parts. So because I had such good skills with my drafting, I figured I could still be in the business. And um, so I became a music copyist. But yeah, I was around music, but really it wasn't until I got in college and really started to get into the music scene that I really took it full blown and, you know, studied 24 seven and went for it. I was going to ask if the saxophone had always been your instrument of choice of choice. I know you mentioned the trumpet there in your intro, so I'm assuming not. Yeah. I started out on the trumpet. I was a brass player. It was funny because my dad's a woodwind player. Ah. Yeah. It's just crazy. I don't know why. Well, it was actually what happened. My dad was doing a television pilot back in the day called music man take 10 it was actually one of the very first pilots that was ever shot on videotape oh wow i remember that well and his he was uh it was about a big band that was traveling on a bus instead of a rock and roll band it was a, a big band which is him and they traveled the country and it was a comedy show and so con musical instrument company that my father um was a clinician for sent all these instruments I saw the trumpet there laying there with all the instruments for the show, picked it up, started playing it, and that was it. I was a trumpet guy and then really switched in, uh, in college. 
when I really changed over. I know that some of your early breaks were getting the opportunity to play with Seals and Crofts and with Diana Ross as well. So I wondered how, right. his, how his opportunities presented themselves. Well, you know, I've always been a big proponent of, uh, you know, I'd take every gig, didn't matter where it was, whether it paid or not, just to try to be around as many people as I could in the industry. Um, the, the, the Diana Ross gig, how did that happen? I can't remember exactly how I got that call. Um, uh, well, Seals and Croft, um, you know, again, it was a lot of hanging around with musicians. My friend, Marty Walsh, who I went off and was also, uh, played in super tramp with, uh, was playing with Seals and Croft ah. and then called me up and, uh, when they were making a change and I went and I took, got that gig. So that was a word of mouth. Um, Diana Ross was again, I'm trying to remember how that happened. <laughs> I remember I was home one day and I got a call to go play with her. Uh, and I almost didn't do it, but I was, had my studio and I wanted to get a new recording console. And I figured oh, I'll go out, I'll go do an eight week tour so I can make some money so I can go <laughs> buy some more gear for my studio. So I went and did that, but she was, that gig for me, was one of the most important gigs I've ever had. I learned probably more about entertainment in, 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 in music, in the music business from her than anybody. Uh, she was an incredible talent. She had a, a very unique ability that, you know, every once in a while you'll find, you'll come across is when she walks in the room, you just can't take your eyes off of her. Sure. She has such magnetism and it was incredible. And she, uh, basically I watched her because I was, I was so in, intrigued on why she commanded so much attention. And I remember it was funny. Um, the first night on the gig, I was making nothing but mistakes. I was actually playing in a horn section and I had to read the charts and I kept trying to watch her the whole night and I kept making mistakes. So I, I went back and, uh, uh, just studied. I took two days, memorized the book so I could watch her. And I started really learning about how she would entertain because she was the kind of person that could get, you know, 16,000 people standing up every night, whether she was singing well or not, she just had this ability to, get people to, you know, to, to respond. And so I really followed and learned from her by looking for patterns and things that she, she would do. And I learned a ton of tricks that she would do night after night. And, uh, they became very helpful later on as I was moving through, uh, you know, getting in the music business. So Diana Ross, uh, I owe her a lot. She was one of my, my major mentors actually, believe it or not. Interesting. I think because most people wouldn't say that, I guess, because they, you know, they would think being a saxophone player would have been this, but here it was this, uh, you know, incredible singer. Another band you mentioned there was, of course, Supertramp. So how did the opportunity yeah, yeah. come to work with Supertramp? Well, Supertramp was interesting. I was playing in a club uh, uh, in uh, called, what was that? Not Josephina's. Uh, oh, so anyway, I was playing Sundays and Monday nights in a club in, uh, in Toluca Lake. And every week there'd be a guy that would be sitting at the bar. And he'd always have a drink, very quiet. Finally, I'd walk up to him and I start talking to him, found out he was the drummer in a band called Supertramp. Uh -huh. And uh, so we became friends there. And he was in the midst of them when I first met him. They were out doing an album called Breakfast in America, <laughs> which was interesting. And he was in town and they were doing it at that time. And then a few years later, you know, a few years later, I got called um, – while I was playing with Diana Ross, I was actually in Las Vegas and he called me and said, Hey, we're looking for somebody for the band. Would you want to come and audition? So I took my day off on, on a Wednesday that I had in uh, Vegas, 
flew to LA, did the audition and ended up getting the gig there. So I try to tell everybody, you just never know who's in the room. You always need to figure out who's there because you never know where gigs are going to come from. Now, if my research is correct, I know that during your time with Supertramp, David Gilmore featured on a track that you played on. So did that meeting with him lead to you working with Pink Floyd later down the line? Yep, absolutely. I was actually, we were in the studio at Rick Davies' house doing the album and Dave came and guested on the album, played a solo on the Supertramp album. And so we became friends there that night. And that night I was playing in a club right down the street. I have a, a band called the Hang Dynasty, which was, uh, you know, Lee Scalar from, you know, Phil Collins band, you know, the great bass player and, and Jeff Baxter from the Doobie Brothers and a whole bunch of guys, Michael Finnegan. We were all playing in this club. So I invited Gilmore after the session to come over. He come out, came over, hung out with us all. And then a week later, I was doing a, an event. I was producing a, a show that I uh, called uh, uh, the First Dance, which I took over the entire. I took over a Guitar Center in Hollywood. We built a stage, and I had this fifty-piece band come in, and I developed this whole thing called visual sound using uh, zooming microphones and this whole thing. So anyway, I invited Dave to that, and it just happened to be that Jeff Beccaro was playing drums on my thing on my show that day, but he was also in the studio with Dave playing on the Pink Floyd record that afternoon. Wow. And he says, Hey Dave, I got to leave. I've got to go do this show uh, with Scott Page. He said, Oh yeah, come along. He told me to came. So Dave came to that show, saw me play again in a, in a kind of a, an event that I put on with this incredible band. And then a couple days later, he called me up to come put uh, some uh, solos on the, on the, on the Pink Floyd record. And that's how it all started. It's incredible. Yeah. It's actually funny is, um, at the time I knew nothing about Pink Floyd. Oh really? Zero. I mean nothing. And, um, so when I went and I, I got called to put the solos on the record, I went and put the solos on. It was cool. And I didn't really think too much about it. And then two days later, after I did that, Dave calls up and says, hey, we're, we're taking the band out again. Would you want to come join the band? And we're going to start up and we're going to go on the road for two years. And I said, you know, Dave, let me think about that. You know, I wasn't really, I didn't know anything about Pink Floyd. And <laughs> so uh, I, I almost didn't take it. I called a couple friends of mine up and I said, I got this call. I did this record last week with the band Pink Floyd. And, you know, this guy, David Gilmore, called me up. on the People were calling, what are you, crazy? You got to <laughs> take that gig. That's like the thing. So that night, I remember going to um, a Tower Records and picking up a bunch of Floyd records so I could hear what it was. And everybody just said I was crazy not to do it. <laughs> so I took the gig. And, boy, am I glad I did. I bet you are. <laughs> Now, Scott, I know you had a bit of trouble pinning down your worst ever gift. So I'm going to change it up and shoot a few different questions at you. Is there anything that someone, say, bought you year on year and you don't like it, but you haven't had the heart to tell them you don't like it? So now you've amassed like a strange collection of something in your house. Oh, gosh. You know, I, I guess I go fruitcakes were the one thing. I can't <laughs> believe it. I got some people keep sending me a damn fruitcake at Christmas. And I hate those things. Don't do that. Have you ever purposely bought something bad for someone on purpose? Oh yeah, we used to do that all the time, right? That's that's the whole prank bit. You buy something goofy, right? Yeah, and uh, we won't talk about some of those goofy things. Oh. We <laughs> some of them are pretty nasty. <laughs> We definitely have a sense of humor, us musicians, right? You, you, you can't you can't diverge just one. 
Well, I mean, I was part, I wasn't one that I did, but I mean, it was a, it was a birthday. And so we took the guy's brand new Porsche, opened up the, the sunroof and filled it with those little tiny, tiny uh, uh, styrofoam balls. No. So we, we bought like $500 worth of those dang <laughs> things and filled up his car to the top and then was able to get the roof somewhat closed. And he was just, it was, his car was filled with the roof. And on top of that, it was like, 10 years later, he says he keeps still finding those little little balls still in his carpets and stuff. <laughs> what are your biggest memories, Scott, from all your time out on the road back then? With Floyd, oh my God, I mean, there's so many memories. I mean, you know, it was interesting in those days. I think one of them is, is that I've had more fun than he, any human being and I'm alive to talk about it. Because uh, I shouldn't be, because when you're out on the road, especially those days when it was a little bit more, uh, there weren't any cell phones, right? We weren't like, uh, we could, we were more free to do things. But, sure. you know, there were so many, I mean, incredible, incredible shows, events, things, you know. Uh, I remember, you know, one of the greatest shows, I think great, uh, the greatest rock shows of all time was Pink Floyd when we played Venice, where they launched those, they floated those two giant barges down from Oslo, took a couple of weeks, and we set the band up on the whole big giant stage, 150 yards off of St. Mark's Square out on the water. Wow. Hundreds of thousands of people showed up for free concert of Floyd. It was like, it was like nothing I've ever seen. The whole city was shut down. There were so many people. I mean, that was an incredible story. I mean, incredible just, you know, hanging out with Dave many nights, talking music, learning from him. I mean, he was my, probably my other major music mentor. He, he really taught me the, uh, the, the power of melody because he is a master of melodies. I mean, especially when you think of records, how many records out there where if you don't hear the guitar solo, it seems like they left out the verse, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it, you know, if you think comfortably numb, that would not be the same without that solo in the middle. So he really changed my playing from playing more like, you know, when you're a sax guy, you're going, bah, 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 but you're trying to play a million notes. And he made me realize that melody was really the key. So I completely changed my thinking about playing and started to play where I try to play melodies and things that people can remember as opposed to try to doing a bunch of, you know, uh, scales and gymnastics that make that nobody can remember. So, yeah, Dave, you know, obviously I think one of my favorite things was, was, was that I can remember was um, I would uh, play guitar uncomfortably numb. I double on guitar and then I would walk over and I'd stand in front of Dave's amp while I play those chords as he would play those solos and I could feel the sound pressure of those speakers pounding me on the back <laughs> and yet the tone the tone that he would get was so beautiful uh so I that was one of my favorite things uh you know to to do I mean I got a million stories that I could tell you in that <laughs> sense musically I know your current project is titled Think EXP did you want to tell us a bit Correct. more about that and how that came to be yeah so uh Think is you know I've been uh, Part of my life has not only been a musician, but I've been a serial entrepreneur. I'm on my fourth company. Um, I've had the pleasure. I was lucky. I, I took one company public. We were a NASDAQ company. So I'm, I'm a business guy. I like business. I love business. I love the art of business. And then just looking at the music business, uh, my, my last companies were basically pretty much all tech companies. 
And I decided that this next one, I wanted to do it where I could still play again and be in the music business and have a company at the same time. So Think is an immersive entertainment company uh, because we now know you can't sell music anymore. There's no place sure. to sell music. Sure. It's about streaming and it's very difficult to make any money in streaming when you can, when you roughly get a, you know, roughly $5,000 for a million streams. And that may sound great, but you know, only two to three percent of the entire Spotify catalog has got a million streams, so it's a very few people that can actually hit those marks. So the, my my thinking was is where and how can you make money? What is the new business models? So I started to realize that the really the money is in the experience. The two things we can sell is the experience and sort of the lifestyle around that in the relationship. Right? It's that piece. So I started really looking into uh, the immersive space and really what what people, you know, where will they buy a ticket? What do they care about? And we just did uh, this last year, uh, we did 40 shows with my, with Think Experience, which is, I have a Think band, which is uh, made up of Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction, Norwood Fisher from Fishbone, uh, uh, Kenny Olds from Kid Rock's band, and uh, uh, sometimes Tony Franklin plays with us from The Firm. And anyway, it's, a, it's kind of an all-star band, and we were doing a Think Floyd experience ah. in a three in a 360 degree immersive dome wow. where people would lay back and they'd sit and they were completely surrounded. It was almost like a shared VR experience playing Pink Floyd. We sold out 40 shows and uh, it was really the beginning of what we're building right now. And now since the, uh, what I'll call, we had BC before COVID and now <laughs> AC, uh, we're now on the other side. The models are all changed, but it's still about the experience. So, we're building and working on new experiences as to bringing how we can marry, marry live, you know, live events plus on way uh, live two uh, two way streaming because we can bring people into our events and then we have some secret sauce we're doing about what we can do to bring a new new things into the living room to bring these new experiences together. So we're an immersive experience based company and uh, working on a whole series of, of of things right now and even though it's different, I would say. Uh, you know, this was going to be our biggest year. We had, we were at jazz fest this year in new Orleans. We had, we were going to Europe, Budapest. We had a whole roster. We were putting it, we were working with people putting up this new 1600 seat immersive dome theater out here in, in long beach. Everything came to a halt. We lost everything, but you know what? I'm actually more excited right now than I've ever been about the opportunities because I think because of all this situation, the, the entrepreneurship is, is going to be insane because there's so many problems that need to be solved. And one of them is really how are we going to bring the live experience and, and use technology and create new events and new ways. And so I'm very excited about what we're doing right now. I'm actually thrilled to death. It's actually a lot of fun. Get to innovate, innovate and invent again. Sounds incredible. With that immersive experience when you're playing in, in that dome environment, does, does that change anything for you as a musician? You know, it's interesting, yeah, because what happens is it's 360, so we see the same thing the audience sees, right? Except, you know, we're looking out. We're actually in the experience, sure. and it's trippy. Sometimes I'm sitting there watching, and I'll forget because I'll get all lost <laughs> in the experience myself because it's wild when that stuff comes around and folds, and these things come flying through as we're, you know, doing crazy blowing and jamming and uh it's just a it's really interesting experience and you know we were even experiencing experimenting with these beds that plugged into the music and there was this whole sonic thing that was going on and 
I mean, there's a lot of very interesting technologies out there that make the experience interesting. And we were just about ready to test out these shoes that you put on that turn you into a speaker. Oh, wow. So we had a company that was going to bring them and bring these shoes for everybody to wear in the event. And we were going to run that. But unfortunately, the the COVID hit and all that stuff. But we'll we'll be getting back more into that as, as time goes on. With the COVID situation having, you know, changed the face of live performance as we know it at the moment, have you been doing anything differently during the lockdown to fill that void? Well, yeah, actually, we're, we're I'm building a whole new business model. We're in the middle of putting our decks together and building our sizzle reels and, and kind of developing the whole business model, working through the financials. So one of the things we did is did a, I'm a big believer of the lean startup principles. If you're a startup guy, I you should definitely look into that if you're not familiar with it, but it's really about a set of principles of testing and validating everything before you move forward and, uh, you know, failing fast so that you can correct your, you know, your pivot to where you need to. And so one of the things we just did is we did a, uh, a live, uh, live stream in a, um, in a, in a sound stage where we did is we surrounded the band with giant monitors and instead of putting visuals on the monitors, we brought all the people. Oh, nice. So we had everybody on the screens and it was like a big living room concert. So we did our concert, but we were talking to people from all over the world and brought them in and took questions and, you know, had it made it more of a, an experience. And that was really to kind of test that model out and learn from that experience. And it was, I would say it was very successful. Uh, it was good for the band because the band felt like they had somebody watching it. You'd look up and there was, you know, 12 of these 80 inch monitors with people all over them from all over the world looking at you. Right. <laughs> and some people were playing guitars. Some people were in cars driving and, and then, you know, you could pick out somebody and have a conversation. So it was, it was actually pretty interesting because it felt, it didn't feel like we were playing you know, by ourselves nice. because it felt like people were actually there in the room and they were just virtually. So that was sort of a test run. And that was uh, something we're definitely pursuing much more. I mean, we, we learned a lot about the, you know, dealing with bandwidth and, you know, the different tool sets. So we're, you know, we're working on all that because, you know, I think we're a technology company on top of the other piece. So we're building out the live stack of technologies as well as the whole audience management and uh subscription platform business that will surround our whole thing so yeah that's we've been just working man i'm working like crazy every day our <laughs> team is like we're on fire running as fast as we can So Scott, wrapping up, if you could go right back to the beginning of your music career and give yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would it be? It would be the same gift that I that I'm that I've just received in the last several years is really taking an inward journey oh, nice. and really trying to discover who you really are. And like the greatest gift for me that I've been able to achieve is I can stop thinking now, and that's really the fact of going to a space of what we call no mind. And that's really reality because if you realize this, you and me right now, the only thing that's real is you and me talking right now. Sure. Everything else is an illusion. Two minutes ago is a memory. It's just something you can do. Two minutes from now, is it's a, it's a complete illusion. So the biggest gift is just realizing the sense of presence, the now, right? Like my angel. It's the idea of realizing that the only step that matters is the one you're taking right now. 
there's only one moment. It's always the same moment. The moment has never changed. I can't walk out of my moment, go somewhere else. It's the same moment. It deepens. But really the gift of really becoming what I would say the watcher from the thinker, uh, because where so many people are, 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 we're all like walk around like in a daze because we're attached to these thoughts in our head, these movies that we create. Oh, I got to go to the market. I mean, you're seeing all these things that are going on. We get all caught up in it and we can actually sit here right now, be suffering. Oh my God, what's going to happen to me? What? I can't do this. How's this going to happen? I'm going like crazy. But in reality, I'm sitting here talking to you. <laughs> Everything's okay. Unless there's a lion or a tiger chasing me, I'm, I'm okay. So the greatest gift is really getting to the point where you resist nothing you surrender to what is because once something has happened it's over you can't change it you can't fix it you can't do anything with it so for me if I was able it took me many years uh it was uh, you know I wish if I had this gift or this understanding when I was younger I would there's nothing more important on the planet than that gift. That's the only gift that matters because you blink, you're 50, you blink, you're on your deathbed. It's that fast. Time is an illusion. So learning that inward journey, learning how to die before you die, and what I mean by that, surrender to just the isness of it all. That's the greatest gift anybody could get. And if I had anything to do over, I would have uh and I that would be the one thing I would just wish that I had learned that much earlier in my life. But then everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. Absolutely. So there you go. And finally, Scott, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Um, you know, the best thing is just my handles on all my social is I am Scott page. I am Scott page. Uh, you can just search, you know, if you search Scott page, Pink Floyd, you'll see me come up. If you say, if you surf, think EXP, Thank EXP. You can see some of our dome shows and some of this stuff. So that's just Google, Google search. You'll find me out there on anything from that. Incredible. Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Great to have you on. Thank you very much, my friend. Honorable hang and uh, appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com.